0: Welcome to the Future of Coding. I'm Ivan Reese. We've been on hiatus for the last half year, and I am pleased to announce that the podcast is back. I've spent the last two months planning, recording, and editing a slate of new interviews, and I'm very excited to share them with you. That's the good news, but you might be wondering why you're hearing from me and not your regular host, Steve Krauss. Well, that's the bad news. Steve decided to step back from his role as chief podcaster and organizer of our community, and he appointed me as his successor. I am sad to see him go, humbled that he asked me to take over, and hopeful that you'll stick with me as I find my footing. The backbone of the show is the guests, with interviews that dig deep into their thought processes, how they see the world, and how that manifests in their work. I want to continue the tradition of highly technical discussions about computer science and tool-making and broad exploration of things people do with these tools, whether that's science, the arts, or education. I also wanna create a new space for some of the people in our Future of Coding community to share what they're working on. And you'll hear more about that a little later this spring. One area where I will be investing a lot of effort is the production values, like the audio quality, the show notes, transcript, and the sonic identity of the podcast. You'll notice a new sound at the beginning of episodes, which I'm calling the startup chime. I think it's a fun way to aurally invite you to the episode. It also opens up the possibility space a bit, allowing other sounds than just the voice to be a part of the show. And you'll see what I mean by that in the next episode. My goal is to release at least one new episode every month, or more if time and my life allow it. And now, on with the show. My guest today is Devine Lu Linvega, an artist, musician, and programmer from, well, everywhere. Devine has spent much of the past few years living on a sailboat. And as you'll see in the interview, this gives him a very unusual perspective on software that feels both decades behind and decades ahead of our contemporary practice. My conversation with Devine lasted more than three hours, so I've decided to split the interview into two pieces. Today, you'll hear about the large ecosystem of tools Devine has created, how they're a reflection of his personal values, how he decides when to build a new tool, and how these custom tools let him make very unique art, music, websites, and more. On the next episode, we'll do a deep dive into just one tool, Orca, a wildly unique visual programming environment that is ostensibly a tool for music, but has also been used for things like procedural animation and robotics, with an aesthetic that feels like a video game from an alternate history where the Macintosh was never created and DOS terminals ruled the earth. Devine and I talk about the history of the project picking apart a number of nuanced design decisions along the way. We also hear how Devine found a user community that embraced Orca and pushed it in all sorts of new directions, how he landed a massive breaking change to the syntax of the language, and of course, lots of technical details about how the tool works. To start the discussion today, I asked Devine to explain how his work relates to his view of the world, and he responded that it's all about context.
1: Throughout our conversation, you realize that while all of these little projects that I'm working on seem like different things, they're really not that different. Like the connecting thread that you'll find in in one and in the other, like it's what I usually call context. Um, I spend quite a lot of time just building tools that would allow me to share context. In most cases, in the work that other people do, if they had dedicated a tiny bit of time to share the context, that would make the things more understandable and exist as a part of something bigger because i hate consuming things as separate little planets what i like is to get a better sense of the whole ecosystem of someone's reflection and also you know like your favorite musician you look at you listen to their music and you're like wow what kind of person could be behind this. And even if the artist didn't decide to be truthful about who they are and what they do, even building some sort of narrative around their work, I find is a way that communicates some context that makes the work more enjoyable and also long lasting. I mean, we're people who think in stories, especially today with Twitter and Facebook and all these things that just try to take the context away from people's own personal website into their own silos. It's harder and harder to kind of like appreciate the full picture of the work.
0: I'm glad that you mentioned people having their own websites because your website is fascinating as opposed to a lot of people who are doing work on the internet where these days for programmers, the norm seems to be that you have a GitHub pages website that has a couple of pages on it or a blog or something like that. Your website is more like a wiki, but a wiki that only you get to edit, which is a really interesting feeling for being invited to explore somebody's work. It's something that I'd love to see more of where, like you're saying context, each of your projects is presented as here's what this is. here's why I made it, and then links to other projects that are used by this project or or vice versa. You try to make the connective tissue between your work really visible. One of the things that you've made is your own system for, um, uh, like, how do you say this? Your own encoding of time, like your own sort of calendar and your own
1: (laughs) clock and that sort of thing. I I, 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 I was like, I know where this is going. Uh, Yeah. yeah, Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people see them and they're like, "Oh, this is too complicated." You know, like your mind just kind of like uh, erases them. But um, it's actually pretty, pretty clever. I, it's not a system I made up uh, for first of all. It's just a oh. system I, I I found, which I was like, "Wow, somebody found something that is like made this some this thing that is just brilliant." I think it's it's maybe like four hundred years old. Huh. Well, the, the, so I have two systems, right? I have a time system and a date system. So the date system is the alphanumeric thing. So it's like. It breaks down the year in twenty six periods of twenty six months, I guess, of fourteen days. So what you end up with is that you have from A to Z, and every letter of the alphabet is a month, and uh, you have fourteen peri- like days. Yeah, that you can. And I've, I just found that it was like the best uh, Scrum period or something. Like, like you can start a project, prototype it in two weeks. You have some a working copy, and uh, at the end of the letter, you can decide. Well, is it still worth you know, bringing bringing into to the next month. I find just you can expect this month to be equally the same amount of days is a good way to pro- to to do work basically.
0: Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I I wouldn't have thought that it had that practical merit to it because here I am thinking like if I were going to adopt a system like that, it would be purely for the aesthetic reasons. It has a very different feeling from the Gregorian calendar.
1: Yeah, that's usually not a good approach. The aesthetics of it can take you in, but you have to find a yeah a reason that would make sense in your workflow. For me, counting on my knuckles for the number of days in a month, I didn't find that super practical. And I'm not super tied to the lunar phases. So I guess I was like, well, maybe something more predictable would be would be neat, especially in the kind of work that I do, which I don't have a like weekends are not any different than weekdays. Yeah. Uh, I just found that was a really elegant system to work with. For the time, I think it's it's called the the Swatch time or something. You know, like the, mm. there's a company, like they make uh, watches and...
0: Yeah, Swatch.
1: Yeah, yeah so they, Swatch made a time system that is decimal. It's just very simple. Noon is 500 and 999 is midnight. It gives you a tiny bit more granularity during your day. Mm-hmm. And just working with this, I found it was really nice. I usually work with Pomodoro systems, and I have a Pomodoro of 30 beats, which is the swatch time. I prefer 30 beats over 25 minutes. It's easier to break down in, in shorter periods, but just, that's just a personal preference.
0: Mm-hmm. From the way you've described both the, the date system and the time system, you've emphasized that it helps you organize your, your rhythm of work. How serious are you about organizing the time that you spend working? Is it something where if you don't have those sorts of structures, you feel a bit rudderless, um, to make a terrible pun? Was, was that a bull pun? Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, or is it, uh, is it the sort of thing where you find it adds cohesion? What is it for you that, uh, that draws you to
1: those sorts of ways of organizing your time? Well, it's multiple things. Uh, So one thing is that I'm terrible with time. So let's say, um, you know, like during these past four years, I made like let's say one or two games, and you'd ask me like, "Oh, so how many time did you spend working on on those games?" And uh, I would say, "I don't know. I would I would just make up a number that sounds uh, like it would make sense." But but I would I would actually have the data. So usually when I look at the data and after like just spitting out a random number. I realized that I have no sense of time. Like my my understanding of how something takes is terrible. And also even like how enjoyable something is. Like I, I have a way of tracking that gives me a bit of an of an idea of how focused I was doing something, and that's kind of correlating a little bit with how invested I was in doing that thing at the time. And sometimes I'm like, oh yeah, that project was had a blast, it was great, and I was like really into it. And, but then I realized that actually I had other projects that were way more Appealing at the time, and I would, in which I was way more invested, and keeping track of these little things, understanding that I am terrible with remembering how much time things took, and how I, I appreciate doing these things. Uh, now at least I have some like some data I can rely on. So I, I, well, if anything, I can use that to plan. So if if I want to start something new, I'm like, well, there's no way I can do this in 200, 200 hours because last time it took four hundred. Like, I might have a sense that it's doable, but like the data on, that I have clearly it says that that's impossible.
0: Do you feel like the data that you're collecting is helping you make more accurate predictions about how you're going to work and how you're going to feel? No. Yeah. <laughs> interesting. So it sounds like it's, um, it's enjoyable to have that data because it helps you reflect. It would be interesting to look back on a project that you'd worked on and think right now, I feel like that project was a blast and it was wonderful. And then you look at the data and go, oh, but I actually felt terrible while I was working on it. Like I could see that being interesting, but it doesn't help you look at a new project and say, I think I'm going to feel good about doing this one.
1: Not really. So that's the whole thing about tracking. I think it might help in subtle ways. It definitely has worth that I can't really explain. And it's worth is definitely not that it helps me not make mistakes. hmm like the whole quantifiable self and that kind of way of doing things, I I absolutely, I I do rigorously every day, but I know that it doesn't really work that well. For instance, um, these kind of systems are really bad at looking ahead. Let's say like, okay, so you you discovered like 16 new music albums and you watched 13 movies and you read three books and like a a book correlates in like 16 hours of output and a movie like 7 and a video game, like Twelve. Well, the thing is that these systems always look backward. I, I made tools that would make prediction, but the only thing that it can tell me is that it it can look back really well, but it has a really hard time figuring out wh- where I'm going and what I should be doing. Which is fair. I mean, so basically, the way I did it is like, well, you know, like these past few weeks. I have a sort of trend in my productivity, and I can decide to do the thing that the system thinks would bring me back to my average productivity in a specific sector. So let's say, like, I usually have, you know, like 16 hours of music per week. Well, if I'm under this more than the under under the amount of hours that I do in visual sector, then it will say like, well, tomorrow, if you're doing audio by your your average uh, productivity and, and the way you do output would be your best, your most productive uh, sector or like domain of, of um, I guess, work. So I can decide to, to follow it. And that would reinforce that pattern. And I can choose to not follow it and create new patterns. The statistics from following or not following is not so far from 50%. So like, it's not that much better than doing whatever the hell I want.
0: So just, just to get clear on this, you're also tracking whether or not you follow the predictions that your tool is giving you based on the data of what you've done in the past. Yes. That's amazing. That's very cool. It's neat to hear that it's 50-50.
1: Yeah. And, and I mean, I look at others tracking system and al- I'm always kind of looking at ways that they might, I might have overlooked something. But yeah, it's, it's, I mean, we're fluid peop- like creatures and sometimes like uh, the, the Inktober.
0: Inktober is an annual event that happens in October where people create a new work of art every day and post it to social media.
1: I decided to do Inktober this year yeah. and that just breaks all patterns. Like this is just, I'm going to pay for this. For the next few months, like it's I decided that i wouldn't. I would invest four hours a day for a whole month, well, for two, like for two uh, so so for four weeks, i would um, I would do this one sector, even though the system would increasingly shout louder in my ear that I should do something else. I, I went through this, but what's going to happen is that's going that's going to create a precedent. that just raised the number of hours that I can physically invest in in visual arts like, but, but I was totally enjoyable. Like, I didn't, I mean, I, I don't feel bad at all of having broken that pattern and that kind of served as a sort of experiment that I might be able to use in the future anyways, but there was no way that the system would have predicted that I would have done that. And not having done this, I think might have been more costly in my general output. There's no way of knowing where you're going and why are you doing anything. So you might as well just mm-hmm. whatever, like you can have a look and make a decision and play along or just follow your own intuition. But for Inktober, I feel like I did the right choice of not listening to my system.
0: This is interesting to me because it gives me another way to look at your work. You make a lot of tools and those tools are all very small and very focused and they sort of interact with one another in interesting ways. It sort of feels like these tools are collaborators of yours. Hearing you talk about your relationship with... The way you're tracking your use of your time building tools to make predictions for it that tell you how you should spend your time to me that sounds a little bit like you're creating like a like another agent that you're collaborating with and that agent is very rudimentary and it's it's based sort of on like an echo of of what you've done in the past but it's still fulfilling some of the roles that you would get from say You know, if you're in a band, your bandmates are going to impose similar sort of constraints on how you should spend your time. Like they might say, you know, we have a gig coming up in a week and our set is terrible. We need to book a lot more time rehearsing over the next week. Or somebody might say, I'm going away to uh, live in South America now. True story. So uh, we're not going to play that show in a week. So those sorts of external forces imposing on what you are able to do in your creative process like that feels sort of similar to this is that how you relate to it is that what it feels like for you or is it something
1: else well the wiki is a completely different tool than every other tool that i made but that one tool is kind of like a project manager like what this what you're describing like it's it's like oh yeah uh-huh you, th- you think you can do this in 200 hours well you have no antecedent of having being able to do that in this amount of, hour, of hours so like why would you even <laughs> and, and and in this, it has a sort of like prescriptive, uh, I don't know, like a reminder. The other tools that I make, usually I don't see them as collaborators. They're more like, Yeah, you know, they're just like tools. They're just there to get me someplace without with the least amount of friction that I, imaginable. And
0: you don't relate to them in a way that sort of earlier in our conversation... When I sort of said, like the reason I would adopt an alternative system for for dates and times uh, would first of all be about the aesthetics of it, you sort of scoffed at that. Is it that you don't really like imprinting agency or imprinting sort of like a, a humanity on inanimate things?
1: Oh no, no, no. I, I, I absolutely love anthropomorphizing things, mm-hmm. especially the, the ecosystem that we created as under rabbits we, we've given like little character faces to all the apps that we made, and that just reinforced this sort of like Personality that the software might have. When I look at Ronin, I I, I see the character that's kind of like uh, a bit uh, dreamy and lost and and kind of like hazy little creature. But the Orca is more like a trickster and also like a sharper kind of thing. And, 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 but 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 my website, I don't have this sort of attachment to it. It's more, I guess I'm I'm part of it and it of me kind of thing. So it, it's more like it doesn't, it doesn't feel like an external force. It's more like uh, like a mirror. Uh, yeah, like maybe the mirror in, in, in uh, Snow White, I guess.
0: I do my own sorts of time tracking just for tracking my hours for my job. And when I look at how I've spent my time, it feels a little bit like looking in a compost bucket. Like these are all the <laughs> you know the remnants of the things that I've been eating over the last day or two. What does it feel like to have that relationship with the computer where it's telling you what to do because you told it to tell you what to do but at the same time you have to look at that and say no but like you said when when doing inktober that you were gonna pay for this over the next couple months and I'm wondering like what does that mean where does that come from like why would you think like you're gonna pay for this like that sounds that sounds punitive where's (laughs) that where's that feeling of punishment coming from
1: all right so If we look, okay. So for audio, for instance. So let's say, well, you write music as well, I think. So, Mm you know, for me, music is like the best music I get from holding off making music. Like the, like the, it has a sort of like a a really strong, like the best music I've written. I've written after not making music for as long as I could. So like, if I gave in every single day to writing music, I would have. A poorer output, poor general output, compared to if I I have an idea, but I just let it ferment in my head for as long as I could, and then when I I just feel like I'm ready to burst, then I actually do it, and then I, f- I found the most focused, productive moments, periods that I had, especially for music, because this 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 sector for me is kind of unique in that sense, has been after like holding out for as long as I could, visual, so for the Inktober usually. I usually draw a little, a few times a year, and that is it. But I I still like. So, my impression of visual arts is that you don't really explicitly need to be doing it every single day to get better. I might not draw for two months, but the next time, two months later, I draw, surprisingly, I feel like I've improved. It could be for my eye having gotten worse and my appreciation of things gotten. Uh, more accessible, but no, like after a while just looking back, I feel like no I, there's definitely was an improvement, but I feel like it came from other sources than actual direct drawing. And if I start to cheat these patterns that I have, like if I just decided, you know like let's forget that I need to hold off writing music to actually get good workout and I'll just spend an hour making music every single day, which I tried. It took me a while to recover to be able to write music of a good enough quality again. <laughs> and and for inktober, My fear is that this would extinguish the the already small flame that I have that makes me draw in the first place by just like draining it dry.
0: I feel exactly the same way about the music that I make and also the programming that I do when I need to do programming that is not just bugs that need to be fixed or features that need to be implemented, but, you know, difficult design work that needs to be done or abstractions are not what they should be. And I need to come up with a, a unifying concept. That kind of work is very similar to how I feel about making music, and which is exactly what you've described. There's only so much of a flame that I have for it. It's very easy to extinguish that. And it takes a while to rekindle. Do you also feel that about your programming or is the way that you relate to programming different yet again?
1: Yeah, the way I relate to programming is different. I can do endless maintenance, so I use that. Actually, I found that a, way, a good way to hack music writing. Okay, Actually, I guess that's a good way of hacking anything <laughs> is I noticed that I have endless patience for, for maintenance. So the more I can offload into the maintenance sphere the more I can kind of like sneak in a bit of music, a bit of visual arts into my, my, my things. And, and that's, a, that's a, like a fancy way of saying that somehow automating <laughs> boring things is actually efficient. Like, I don't think I would have been able to get through Inktober by sheer investment of time in drawing. After five days, I was already done. I was like, that's it. There's no way I'm going to be able to keep moving forward with drawing. I had to offload a bit of the visual tasks into the maintenance thing. So what I started to do is I I made a tiny tool to do the Inktober. It was just a drawing tool. And like, you don't need much, right, for a drawing tool. It was just like a hundred lines of code. But every single day I found when I went to bed, I thought of both my illustration and a technique that I would want to use. What I did is usually i would make a tool designed specifically for that technique so i could draw that picture and just just the shifting the sort of like the, the mindset from maintenance to drawing and back and forth allowed me to survive throughout the months because otherwise from just drawing i would have run out of the juice from the beginning that's something i've been kind of testing with recently so orca was a good way of hacking back into music so what happened a few years ago is that i completely extinguished the flame that i had for audio There was, uh, you know, like a subsequent uh, show that I was uh, playing. And and then I started to write more music than I could afford. And what happened is that I just ran out of ideas. And when that happened, I, I thought maybe I'll never be able to write music again. But Orca was a way of like gradually rekindling that flame by just like kind of like sneaking audio tasks via programming. So I would create like little programs that would inspire music that would inspire like a, the audio mindset and gradually that came back and I've Orca basically revived the flame that I had for, for, for sound and music and all this just just by hacking tapping into the sort of like maintenance little low, low hanging fruit programming things that I had in mind
0: I think I get the the feeling you're describing and the, and the drive that you're describing but I wouldn't use the word maintenance I want to drill into that slightly to see if we're feeling the same thing
1: okay so you know like the, the the time tracking system that I have that it has three three numbers, so every single day for as for output, I track using three numbers like a little code you know like, like three hundred forty five and one hundred twenty seven mm-hmm. the first number is is the sector, so like either audio visual or programming the, the second number is like the sort of like the, the vector of extroversion and introversion of the task, so like uh, showing something would be like. An extroverted task and and watching something a sort of introverted task, maintenance. It, when I say maintenance, basically, it's like this sort of like shorthand that I use for saying something that is introverted. So like something that doesn't really change. Like let's say if if we if we looked at the at that vector from like you know plus ten and minus ten, where it's at near zero you, you get these tasks that don't really move the project forward. I am very comfortable at, at in this space. I can spend countless amount of time doing. Tasks that are basically just maintenance, just uh, improving, reflecting on how the thing is built or, or, or even generally building tools instead of build, building an actual game. You know, like it's like the easiest way of procrastination. Mm-hmm. You could directly attack a problem or you could spend an endless amount of time making an engine for getting the thing. So in the sense of getting an end product that is a game, making an, an engine is like a super kind of introverted task because this is not going to be front facing. Mm-hmm. and i am i could do that where i could act in that space forever so when i'm out of juice basically of, of like direct action juice basically i just try to like exist in that space and be productive in, in this sort of maintenance stuff and usually it's good for kickstarting a new project or just getting myself back into a state where i can do finished projects
0: are there kinds of programming that you have to do that don't feel like maintenance and if so what kinds of
1: programming are that I find game design, level design, uh, animation, like a assets animation, right in a, in a game. Mm-hmm. This sort of programming is I find it's like a very very direct. Like you tell the computer what you want, like you, and how to do it. I think I find it's very very extrovert, and I have a hard time sometimes tackling um, this sort of task. Like repeatedly, the kind of programming I hate the most is animating assets. I have a really hard time putting days of that sort of programming one after the other, but I can do endless amount of tasks of relinting my code and adding comments and, (laughs) you know.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, fixing up names or reorganizing things. Yeah. And so you say animating and other asset creation, is that something you're doing by writing code, you know, like writing new systems or is it where you're using the tools you've built to sort of create the data for those animations?
1: Well in in an ideal world I would already have libraries for doing th- that I made to do this but I haven't really like it's I'm fairly new to well I guess I'll fair, I'll be fairly new to programming forever but even though me I've been, I've been doing that for years now I feel like I'm I'm only starting to grasp the, the basics of how I can be efficient with programming mm-hmm. recently I've been kind of like compartmentalizing a lot of the things that I I do repeatedly it hasn't really reached that that's kind of stuff yet, you know like I still do all the animation by hand for uh, moving assets around and, and that kills me yeah. but but right now I'm kind of like refactoring two games that I want to release, and this really like this is the last time I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the last time I'm doing this by hand
0: that means then you now have the the impulse to make better tools so that you don't have to do as much of it by hand the next time you're doing this.
1: Yeah, I, I didn't really understand the problem at first, so I could not have done it sooner. I'm usually 10 years behind common practices, so I don't know, I guess uh, I would be like 2009. I don't know where JavaScript was at the time, but that's pretty <laughs> much where I'm at now.
0: Yeah you have good company there in me because I've, I've sort of <laughs> looked at what javascript has done over the past decade and said no thanks so
1: glasses really you can do that like yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I, my code still looks like a i don't know it hasn't really changed much i guess
0: at this point in the interview devine's internet connection died and rather than just edit around that technical hiccup I figured this would be a good place to put a sponsor break. REPLIT is an online REPL for over 30 different languages. It started out as a code playground, but now scales up to a full development environment where you can do everything from deploying web servers to training ML models, all driven by the REPL. They are a small startup in San Francisco, but they reach millions of programmers, students, and teachers. Are looking for hackers interested in the future of coding and making software tools more accessible and enjoyable. Email jobs at rebel.it if you're interested in learning more. Thanks to REPL.IT for sponsoring the transcript of the podcast, which you can find at futureofcoding.org slash episodes 44. And now back to the interview. Can you name all of the software tools that you've made and give like a 10 second description of what they do?
1: So the, the ecosystem, which is how I call it, that we create at 100 Rabbits is basically one called Left, which is the tool that we use to write. It's a very simple writing tool, except imagine Word, but with auto-completion. <laughs> uh, maybe Word does it now, but... We wanted something that was cross-platform that worked on Chrome OS because we live on a boat and we don't have that much power. And one of the devices that we use for writing is a Chromebook, which uh, um, <laughs> only has Chrome, so it has to it had to work in the browser. But uh, it has some interesting auto-completion things, and we it's the the thing that we use to, for long-form writing usually.
0: How does it derive the auto
1: completions? Where do they come from? It builds a dictionary from everything that you write. Oh, okay. So over time, it just you know has a good idea of what you're trying to write so it's that classic
0: like using a database to do a perfectly good job of things that everybody's trying to do with machine
1: learning nowadays oh my god don't get me started on that
0: yeah <laughs>
1: yeah yeah but yes all the programs that we make are very very simple so this one is the simplest dot grid is the thing that we use to make vectors so we do a lot of um typography or iconography and i'm not a super fan of gimp and uh, inkscape no me neither so i was like y- you know sometimes you just want to have a freaking circle with a cross in the middle and then you're fighting with like 0.005 decimals on Inkscape and I was like I just want something simple to make SVG files or like something that I can laser cut or whatever so I, I just made a program it's you know almost a single file it's a very simple thing it works in a browser
0: yeah anybody out there if you need to make a logo
1: for your project go use dot grid it's it's very cool for that S- super simple all keyboard operated well, actually, like with Dogwood, I created all the iconography for Roka. Um, the other one is, is Ronin, which is what I used for doing batch resizing. It does a whole bunch of stuff now, but the idea was that you know you, you take a whole bunch of pictures and you want to resize all the pictures to half their size and export them into a JPEG with, with a new name. There's all sorts of ways of doing this with the terminal, which I find super complicated. I just wanted a simple way of scripting this sort of actions in Lisp and just getting the result. So I made a sort of like... I guess a little engine to, to do that, like a little interpreter, a little library, and you can do all sorts of photo manipulation and export files. But people added a whole bunch of functions to do processing type things. So, so basically now it's basically a, like Canvas using Lisp in the browser that can do all the processing things that are visual. Also even like audio related now, it's hmm. it's becoming a bit of a monster. So I'm going to have to take the axe out then. <laughs>
0: So for Ronin, just to go a little bit further on that one, because that one's another really interesting one, it's a two-pane window, and on the left side, there's a text editor. It works just like a Lisp REPL that, you know, you've all seen a thousand times. You type in your Lisp code and then invoke it, and it does something on the right pane, which is your
1: graphical preview. Imagine Photoshop with Emacs on the left side.
0: There are all sorts of nice things you can put in, like... There's a little special syntax you can enter that says replace this spot with whatever position the mouse is in. And so you can use that to, in a DIY sort of way, like build a drawing tool right there in the program. Yeah. Um, And there are people using it to do animations, and there's people who have written
1: strange attractors that rotate around. (laughs) Yes, it's just so simple, but uh, I I wanted that in my life, and I couldn't find it.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. You also have tons and tons and tons and tons of little things that you've built. I think my recent favorite was for, for Inktober. You made a one-bit drawing tool. Yeah, well, I had
1: just uh, transitioned to Linux from OS X And, uh, well, I had been using Photoshop in a while, so for quite a while now, because when, when you're sailing and you don't have access to internet, when your drawing tool and resizing tool breaks because you don't have internet access, that becomes kind of a problem. So we decided to ditch all DRM Mm -hmm. bullshit Mm -hmm. but then i was like okay so i have to draw i just want to draw like something really simple so i was looking up online you know like something that is web-based that just lets me draw something kind of like paint basically because i didn't really need much more but i really wanted halftone so that was like that's where i started i was like well i don't want colors but i do want different weights of halftone and um, well there wasn't really much out there i'm not super comfortable with OpenGL or SDL. And, and I was like, well, I know Canvas, so I'm just going to build in Canvas. And, and I was afraid that it would take a lot of memory. You know, like sometimes you, web tools, like Ugh, it's going to kill my battery or whatever. Mm-hmm. But the way I implemented it, it turns out it takes less power than using GIMP. So that was a win. And so I did my whole month using this little tool that I made that is a single file. I think it's like 180 lines of code.
0: And just to help people picture it, The aesthetic of the images that it creates is very similar to what you'd get using something like Mac paint on an old black and white Mac from the eighties. Yes. It's a white canvas and your only operations are to turn individual pixels black. There's no anti-aliasing. There are tools for drawing straight lines. There's an eraser. And then there's a tool for putting in just individual black pixels. What what else do you need? Yeah, like like well, uh, but then the thing that I loved is you you built that tool and you started doing some drawings with it, and then you thought, you know what I need is I need to build a little three D engine for like <laughs> like laying out the scene of the thing I'm going to draw, and so it's like on the one hand it's this throwback to the black and white eighties drawing apps of yore, but on the other hand it's like I'm going to make a three D engine. When I saw that, I just like almost fell out of my chair because it's it's such a beautiful synthesis of simplicity that takes you back to some of the roots of computing. But at the same time, you have everything that's happened since the 80s to draw on. And so, you know, when something like a 3D engine is the right tool for the job, by this point, it's not hard to make something like that.
1: Yeah, how, how lucky are we that we can do this? You know, like yeah. w- while I was working on this, every day I was like surprised. I was like, "How is this possible that I can?" You know, like in the morning, I'm like, "I really want to do this. I really want to do X," and you can actually do it. Like if if you if you live in, on OS X and Windows your whole life, you kind of missed you you, you miss this whole way of doing computing where actually building the thing that you need, the, the specific thing that w- that will get the job done with absolutely no friction. It's not that far out of reach. Yeah. I I lived outside of this sphere for the longest time, but now I'm like, if something gives me any kind of friction, I know that I can turn and just rebuild it. Because there's a, a massive amount of really clever people that addressed these problems before. So like, you can kind of draw on this and pick and choose the parts that you want and actually begin to experience modular computing.
0: And not to derail it, but I think that's where the people who are the staunchest critics of JavaScript are kind of missing the the bigger picture. Like a lot of these tools you build, you build them in JavaScript to run in the browser. What you get in exchange for doing that is sure you have to use JavaScript, which is, you know, it has some storied history to it and it's, it's not the most elegant language by a long stretch, but you get the whole web platform. You get Canvas, you get CSS if you need that, You have WebGL, if you need that. You have Web Audio, MIDI, VR. Now, those standards are created to be portable. The browser vendors are pulling just insane levels of optimization to make sure that you can write all sorts of malformed, badly organized code and have it not destroy the battery on the computer of everybody who's running it. So with a little bit of know-how, you can build yourself... Exactly the tool that you want using this web platform, and it's such a tremendously powerful point of leverage that if you turn your nose up at JavaScript, you are also missing out on that on that leverage.
1: Yes, I think JavaScript is the perfect way to invite you in that sort of place where you can feel empowered by the tools. On the other hand, I mean, I absolutely love JavaScript, and I, I am on the side of the people who. I mean, I find the language is beautiful. What you can do with it is great. Sure, people will always write, raise the "what" video and be like, "Oh, like how can you work with things like this?" This doesn't apply to my everyday life. Like doing these edge cases, you have to acti- actively look for them. Especially in my case, since I build really simple things.
0: Yeah, or you can use a transpiler. Like if you need types, use PureScript. Use you know TypeScript, something like that.
1: Yeah but but all of this is something that I'm I'm trying to phase out of my like I mean I have no problem with JavaScript as a language and I wish it was easier to spin outside of the browser ecosystems yeah. I have friends who work at Google on the canvas implementation and when you go there you realize that my ease of being able to tap into all this sort of these different technologies to make this, these tools really quickly relies on incredibly powerful machines that I don't have access to, and I, I'm basically at the mercy of Google for anything Web MIDI and Firefox and these handful of browsers to create the things that I do now, which is something I don't really like. You know, like building Chrome is a massive yeah. thing. I don't have the, the the hardware here to do this, and in the future I'm hoping to actually like one of my the things that I'm really thinking about these days is like I'd never want to have a stronger computer than what I have today. There's no reason I shouldn't be able to do what I want with the things that I have today. Walking that treadmill of like thinking that I need stronger computer to do more things. I think computing kinda of like capped in the eighties and we were like just like nothing really improved. So there's no reason to for me right now, for the the few basic things that I need computers for, I don't see why I should want to keep getting more processing power. So what what I want to do now is like gradually learn how to go a little bit deeper and build the things on this smaller stack of technologies. One of my big hobby right now is just how can I make everything run on Scheme or run on vanilla C yeah, just kind of like get away from this thing that invited me in and that taught me about programming a little bit and that taught me about how I can feel empowered by computers. But now I also want to be independent from a lot of the things that I find are destroying the environment right now or like the sort of like treadmill disposable electronics. I would love to be able to just keep on using disused or like um, secondhand computers and just keep doing the things I like to do with them without having to like constantly keep up with the updates of Chrome and so on.
0: I feel that in a big way, especially you said that you feel like computing sort of capped in the 80s. And my go-to example of that is a measure of latency called motion to photon. Yeah, Yeah. If you push a key on your keyboard, how long does it take for photons to be emitted from your display? And that's something that in some cases has improved since the 80s, but in a lot of cases has regressed. It's the sort of thing where the industry has made choices that prioritize things other than latency. And the motion-to-photon latency in most computing systems is at the point where it is slower than the threshold that you need in order to deal with things in a musical way. So, for instance, the granularity of music is at like 10 milliseconds, you know, 15 milliseconds, 20 milliseconds, somewhere in there. If you are more than that amount of time out of sync you will hear the difference. And the motion to photon on most computers is like 30 milliseconds, 40 milliseconds, 50, 60. So one area that we could have spent the benefits of Moore's law would have been to improve latency, but that's not where we went. We went with improving how many pixels of video can you decode per unit of time i really feel you when you say you're not feeling the benefit of the treadmill of new disposable computing hardware i'm very familiar with that feeling
1: i feel like i'm 10 years behind because this is it's something like it's a whole culture that i'm kind of discovering but that hasn't been active for a long time it's just it was completely in my blind spot just a few years ago i was building apps for ios and people were warning me about yeah well i would get this sort of like i would i would, the only part i remember of these comments was the cynicism but i didn't really quite understand and now I'm kind of like, oh, that's what people are warning me against—the platform locking, that yeah. the, the grip that Apple is gradually closing, and like just the January thing, like in a few weeks, what the all the apps that are not code signs are not going to work on OS X, and that mm-hmm. that's like half our market because we inspired all our friends to migrate on the Apple ecosystem, and I feel so bad for this. This is this is like probably one of the yeah, I totally regret that. I, I, w- I didn't know better. And I was not surrounded by people who could have showed me. But now, nowadays, it's kind of like, oh, how can I make up for that sort of like ignorance? The
0: web standards people have always sort of held the mantra, you know, don't break the web. If you're introducing a new standard, do it in a way that's backwards compatible. Don't rename existing functions. Don't, you know, remove features. And yet it happens. Like there was a change earlier this year where Chrome changed the autoplay behavior so that things that use audio won't be allowed to Emit any audio until the user interacts with the page. And that was a breaking change because previously, if you wanted audio on the page, you could make that auto play as soon as the page started running. And so a bunch of independent artists and game developers had made video games that run in the browser that relied on that behavior. And the change in Chrome broke that. And I think that was a really big wake up call to a lot of independent creators that the web is not a platform where you can make something and expect it to continue to run indefinitely, even though there's all the counterexamples of like the Space Jam website from 1995 still runs today the way it did back then. That sort of like survivorship bias. Like there are a lot of cases where you can make something, it will run for a while, and then it will stop. You're responding to this by moving more towards C and scheme What other sort of changes are you making to try and avoid being herded in the direction of
1: perpetually upgrading? Well, mm, I feel like this occupies my mind constantly right now. A lot of the, the time I spend doing research, I'm absolutely enamored by the sort of like romantic idea of that someday I could just, you know, just spend a whole year in free BSD and just, like I could build every single tool that I that i need and not rely on more it's like a, it's like a road i'm not really sure where like what the ultimate point is uh, or where exactly i'm going but i'm trying to explore the idea of modular computing as far as i can and on as little resource as possible. Our studio runs 100% on solar. So that means that it makes us very conscious of where the cycles <laughs> of our computers are, are being spent. You know, like mm-hmm. uh, if I had the choice between two apps, I'll usually my first question is, you know, the one that takes the less amount of CPU. And nobody thinks like this anymore, or nowadays. Like I was giving a talk in Portland and every single day I would have startups coming up to me, introducing me to their product. But the first thing I would say is like, does it work offline? And then, oh, no, sorry, it's some kind of web service. So I don't feel like I am a demographic anymore for anything that is computer related. So I figured I might as well just just experiment in, in that space where some people in their 50s now are exploring how to keep Plan 9 running on their Raspberry Pi or, you know, like just keep their favorite bits and pieces of what's around and, and live off that and experiment with computing in a way that is not super common. Like recently for fun, I, I just started using Gopher. It's the best way of getting of access to like long form content or database of things that does not need to blinks and play music and play videos at the same time and ads and all that kind of stuff. Like if you're looking for one thing, I feel like one third of the web could be just Gopher databases. and. You're looking for something, you don't need bells and whistles. Well, most of the time I browse, I'm in reader mode. And Gopher gives you that with like 100th of the processing power that are required. Mm-hmm. And that's a form of computing that is not the norm. But I'm all for efficiency. And, and when there's an efficient way of doing something, I'll, I'll try to gun for it. If I was for convenience, I wouldn't be living on a sailboat and solar. Yeah. But I found that this way of life advised the way I interact with the computer. And even though there's less and less people that maybe are interested in that kind of stuff, I think I could still try to live in that space and build things for that space because I'm pretty sure that it's it's completely a, a, a sort of like forgotten demographics. From my perspective, you know, like I look at old people, you know, like, oh, the new Xbox is coming and, and they're all jumping on that sh- sort of garbage and they're not really seeing you know like how that xbox came into being and how long it's going to be on earth and how, how they're going to get rid of it and uh, i find it's completely a tone deaf to look to these kind of technologies and seeing them as they're better they're really not better
0: yeah or they're better if you only look at certain kinds of measurements that are very selective they're not holistically better
1: yeah not better is in ways that i I value things.
0: Yeah. You say that this puts you in sort of scarce company, but I would say that there's actually some places where I've seen a lot of sympathy for this move towards being very conscious of energy efficiency and being very conscious of the upgrade treadmill. For instance, the programming language Forth, which is um, another sort of, I think it was from the 70s originally but it's a a sort of a spatial language where you're creating little units of code that exist on a kind of a two-dimensional space and each unit can communicate with the units side to side or above and below and they sort of pass data around like i remember seeing a strange loop talk uh, by the creator of the language
1: you have to put that in the podcast links i would love to watch this
0: oh yeah it'll be in the podcast links yeah uh, you know what? Actually, I'll just Google it now and then edit out the sound of me Googling it. Fourth Programming Language wow. Fourth. Yeah, so Forth um, created by Chuck Moore. It's a language that he created with energy efficiency very much in mind. Not only is it an interesting language because of the spatial character of it and the influential role it played in the development of later languages, but he created it thinking that this spatial character would be useful because perhaps one thing that might have happened in the development of computers would be little tiny independent uh, like microcomputers that would communicate in sort of instead of having like one big single core processor that would do a whole bunch of work in order you'd have something more like a gpu where you had lots of little independent units of computation but that they would be arranged spatially and they'd be able to communicate with their neighbors which in a gpu you can't do in a gpu each core is independent
1: yeah i think inferno works like that right
0: what is inferno
1: oh it's um well it's an operating system but i think Inferno has some ties with Plan 9, but also I've seen this sort of like physical computing models. Also, like there's a Lisp OS called Chrysalisp. And also I think it's designed to work on multiple cores that are spatially organized because on its documentation, there's like, mat- like matrix of computers talking to each other. And the OS kind of like takes that for granted, to take, takes that in consideration.
0: Yeah. Or there's like, um, uh, I think its name's Dave Adley. His name is Dave Ackley. He had a programming model that was designed for resiliency, and it was also spatial, and it was sort of like each unit in the program would try and build up the units around it. And so if some of the units were destroyed because you know, this is executing in an environment where that might happen, there might be some you know, physical damage or something like that, this is a programming model that would sort of work around that because part of the model is... You're not just sending data over to your neighbor, expecting it to be there, but you're handling the case where your neighbor doesn't exist, and you need to sort of build them from nothing. And so it sort of makes the code into like this sort of self-replicating, self-perpetuating model.
1: That's so cool. I love. I, I, I actually I'm really excited to look up forth and how they plan for efficiency of energy. And I'm also interested in how these other languages plan for resilience actually that's th- things i'm not really seeing a lot or e- exposed to
0: i'll put that to strange loop talk in the show notes because he goes into a good explanation of like i think he was aiming for something like uh what was it like he wanted the execution to be like so many picojoules joules per um, <laughs> clock cycle or something like that like the idea was to make computing happen at many thousandths of the amount of energy that it would take to run a an x86 CPU or something like that. And unfortunately, I don't think it works. You know, if you execute it on top of our current hardware, it would require the hardware that it was being designed with in mind. But it's definitely one of the shining examples of people looking at energy efficiency as part of the design of their their programming model.
1: Oh, well, I mean, you know, when I said I was, I felt alone, I I think, I mean, there's so many people in that space doing amazing things that I'm just not aware of. I'm kind of like just new stumbling, that kind of stuff. I don't want to say that I've, you know, covered the whole area. There's definitely all that kind of stuff I still have to find. It's just me, myself, my own experience in, in that sphere. I found that, I mean, there's a few people here and there. And when I look on their website, it really feel like... It's really hard to reach them outside of the mainstream.
0: Yeah. Uh, it's definitely not something that Microsoft or, or Google are saying, like, this is our vision for the future.
1: Yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> it's, they're being left out of where things are going.
0: And that brings us to the end of the interview for today. Be sure to stay tuned for part two of my discussion with Devine Lou Linvega where we go very, very deep into his orca spatial programming environment. It's super weird and very interesting. I've got a couple of quick things to point you to before I conclude the episode today. First of all, the Future of Coding community is running a survey to collect information about the interests of our audience and to set the roadmap for what sorts of new projects we're going to be working on this year. The survey is pretty quick and fun. If you'd like to take a couple minutes to fill it out, I would greatly appreciate that. You can find the survey at the convenient, radio-friendly link bit.ly forward slash foc2020. Yes, the implication is that we will probably do another one of these surveys in about a year, just to see how things change over time. Thanks again to our sponsor, REPLIT. The transcript is available at futureofcoding.org episodes slash 44. And you'll find links to everything that Devine and I mentioned in the show today on that page. That's it for this time. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the future.